And I told him, I said, Mark, you know, I'm a Montana violinist. This is where I want to make my career. Um, and that's got a bit of story to it. I, uh, when I was a kid, when I was 16, I went to Germany on a student exchange for um, a cultural exchange. And I played there in a conservatory. And I remember flying back into Bozeman and looking down and thinking, this is the most gorgeous place in the world. Why would I ever go anywhere? Um, besides that, I love fishing. I love hunting. All these things make it so that I'm, I'm going to be Montana forever. I'll never leave the state. So um, with that in mind, I told Mark, I said, I'm a Montana boy. I want as much a Montana violin as you can make me. Welcome to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. I'm Joe McHugh, and this podcast is about the violin, but it is also about the love of place. Bozeman, Montana is located in the heart of the Rocky Mountains. I visited Bozeman in 2015 to interview Eric Funk. Eric is a composer, conductor, and professor of music at Montana State University. I've already featured my conversation with Eric in a podcast. Well, I returned to Bozeman in 2018, at Eric's urging, to interview Michael Sertalik. Along with being an accomplished violinist, Michael heads up the strings program at the local high school. He also has a unique story to tell about how he acquired his custom-made violin, a violin with strong connections to the state he loves. So, Michael, uh, I was here uh, not not that long ago and did an interview with Eric Funk, mm-hmm. who is also uh, lives here in Bozeman and teaches at uh, Montana State University. And he's not a violinist, but he is a composer and a conductor. And he uh, had done a, a composition called The Violin Alone. And we talked a lot about that and this uh, attempt to see if you could... Uh, duplicate in some way the all the instruments of the of the orchestra with just the one instrument if you could play it in all these different ways so um, knowing that I was coming back to Montana uh, he got talking about this violin that uh, you had made and uh, and then how he got involved in it so if you just want to start the story from the beginning how the idea came and who made it all all the particulars and how he got involved you bet well, Eric's uh, part in this uh, comes back about three years, starts about three years ago. Um, any fiddle player, uh, and I say fiddle player as a fiddle as the love name of violin, right? I don't distinguish between fiddle player and, and violinist in any way. Um, I figure if you're playing the instrument uh, and you love it, you call it fiddle player. Some people call it violin uh, in a professional way, but... Um, you know, it's Isaac Perlman is, is that way. He oh, calls yeah. it the fiddle. Totally. Isaac Stern, he says, I'm a fiddle player, you know. And so uh, at any rate, um, we're, all, we're all fiddle players, whether we play Eastern European music or uh, uh, gypsy jazz or, you know, uh, traditional uh, old-time fiddle music here in America. Um, we all share, you know, the fiddle in common. And we all share, I think... Uh, a fascination which begins the first time we ever hear the sound and it never ends never ends 
every single time I pick up the fiddle to, to practice, um, every time I hear another student play or a professional uh, starts playing, it grips me, I think, like every, every fiddle player that's ever lived. We're all just drawn to it. There's a, a fiddler that I'm very fond of, and, and he's a good friend, plays both American fiddle style and also plays Irish quite well. Mm. And he says, however, if he gets away from the violin for a week or something, and he, he plays other instruments too, and he's a very involved guy in music, he'll pick it up and sometimes absolutely wonder how it works, as if just being away from it that long and how that thing happens when you get it going and then it, it has this uh, effect on on him and, and the people that listen to him. But it's almost as if he has to rediscover it. I, I just thought of that when you were saying that. Do you find that when you pick up the violin, it, it's alien at all? Uh, completely. Um, the okay. funny thing, you know, and Isaac Stern, bringing him up again, uh, said it best, if, if I don't practice for one day, I notice. If I don't practice for two days, my friends notice. If I don't practice for three days, the whole world notices. So in other words, he, he knew the whole thing about coming back to the violin. And, you know, if, if again, if I'm away um, from the fiddle fishing, fishing yeah. <laughs> for days or whatever, um, and I come back, um, the funny thing is it always sounds far better when I first pick it up to me. I mean, there's, there's a uh, the intrigue of it, the overwhelming sense of the of the tonality, just grabs me again. And then I get back into practicing, and I get back to the minutia of all the intonation work and the articulation work, the tone type work that we're we're all doing. And and then I start searching for that powerful sound again. But I I do know that every time I pick it up after a, a small time away, it's just magic again. You know, mm-hmm. every time. Have you ever put it aside specifically to reclaim that magic? No, <laughs> no. It's usually um, life intervening. It, it's life intervening. It's uh, well, a good example. Um, I like, you know, I, I'm a teacher. That's mostly what I do uh, during the day. And, you know, I try and get my three hours in a day or whatever, um, which is every professional player, uh, you know, especially violinist who has to keep up that vir- virtuosic technique has to do. But, uh, even Fritz Kreisler, I think, practiced more than he claimed, you know. Um, but at any rate, I've never put it down. I just, I can't be away from it. It's, uh, I feel like something's missing if I don't play for a day. But being a teacher, for example, I took uh, a group of kids on a European tour for 10 days um, a couple of months ago. And when I'm in that role, all I'm doing is troubleshooting, taking care of the kids, making sure we make the buses on time, make sure the the venues are open, um, all the different things that you take care of during that uh, as an administrating teacher. Um, and I had to be away from my fiddle. So a lot of times I'll grab kids' fiddles. <laughs> and I'll just warm up on them a little bit while we're in the cathedrals. And it, uh, it pulls me back. But um, So no, I've never put it down... Uh, intentionally for any sort of time. Ever because of injury at all? Um, not me. Mm-mm. I know I know lots of people that have. Um, you know, because they're, it really is an awkward thing we're doing. You know, and we're, our, arms, our left arm is in a really contorted position and we're having to be extremely precise with kind of a backward sense of where the hand is um, <laughs> from what we're used to looking at. Um, this arm was never really meant 
you know, at least, uh, uh, at least, you know, through evolution, it wasn't meant to be a bow arm. I mean, it's meant to walk or to throw things or to grab things, you know, but the bow arm trajectory is really a kind of an odd thing. So it's definitely a learned, um, a learned motion, you know? Mm -hmm. So again, uh, the bodies, especially when you're playing a bunch, um, and I think, you know, people who are playing in symphonies have a lot of injuries related to repetitive motion, uh, especially in the sh- right shoulder and a lot of times in the carpal tunnel area and so on. Yeah. But luckily, I've never had that problem. A lot of it's you try and relax as much as you can when you play. Are there any stories about someone returning to the violin after an injury that you've heard that your you know, first person knew, knew about? Hmm. Not in, oh boy, not in first person. Um, I know a story of a gal who had uh, brain surgery, cancer. Uh, she was a violinist and they had to remove a large portion of her brain. Um, I'm not sure, you know, frontal lobe. I, I don't know what they had to remove, but um, I do know that uh, through playing, um, she was able to gain so much of her cognitive, ability, cognitive abilities back. Um, and, uh, and a lot of her musicality stayed with her, a lot of her, uh, ability and skill as a musician, um, even with the removal of speech parts of her brain, even so. Mm-hmm. And she was a violinist. Yeah. She was a violinist yeah. played in a symphony back East somewhere. But again, it's kind of one of those things that rattles in the back of my brain somewhere. Sure. Let's go back to this uh, violin project. So tell yes. me what, what evolved. As a violinist, you're always, you're always striving to improve your own playing the sound because your fiddle is your voice. Um, I know there are a lot of fiddle players who are also good singers and I love to sing, but my voice is terrible for singing. Could I develop it? Yeah, but maybe, maybe, but, um, it's not a great voice for singing. So the, therefore the fiddle is my voice. And so for years, the way I've, I've finally done it because it's violin trade is a horse trade. I mean, it is, it is so difficult to know if, you know, a high price fiddle actually does sound better. You can't, uh, I can't even trust my own instinct on that. If I know what the price of a violin is, I automatically have a preset in my brain that somehow this must be better. It's true also with, um, with the great name violins, you know, you might have a Strad that, uh, you know, it's a Strad. So you play it better, whether you know it or not, just because you're, um, enamored with the name and, and the history of the, of this great fiddle. So at any rate, um, the only way I've developed to, um, improve my instrument for me, for my voice is that I'll, I'll take a new prospective violin and for a couple of weeks, I'll go back and forth between the current violin I'm playing on and the prospective violin and whatever violin I keep wanting to gravitate to, what, what, whatever fiddle I want to grab first when I practice um, or perform is the fiddle that I, I keep. So if it's the new fiddle, that's great. Um, if it's the old fiddle, that's fine too. Uh, but through that process, I've gone through around 24 fiddles in the last, you know, in my career probably the last 30 years of playing. Um, at any rate, uh, there's a luthier who lives in Missoula, Montana. His name is Mark Hollinger, 
who I've admired his work visually for years. Uh, every time I'd go into Missoula to play a, a gig or um, just have to be traveling through, I'd stop at his shop and oftentimes he would say, oh, here's my latest fiddle. And he'd hand it to me and I'd play it and there were always something, there was always something that I loved about that fiddle. Um, but they never quite pulled me from my own violins that I was playing at the time. Um, the last two older violins that are kind of a, a bit bigger of a name violins that I, I currently own are a Scarampella, a Stefano Scarampella and a um, Poggi. And they're both great, wonderful fiddles. I mean, they project really well and they sound great. Uh, and they were made again what time? They were made in the early 20th century. In Milan or in, uh, in Italy? In Italy, okay. yeah. In Italy. Um, and a lot of people are these days know about the Scarampellas and even a few people about the Pogies. The real Strads and the real Del Jesus are so rare and so hard to come by that, you know, um, uh, basically you've given up on those uh, unless you are able to get one through a foundation or on loan from you know, Strad Society or something like that. So... But I wanted one that I, I could own myself, and so I have those two, and I've been playing them against each other, and uh, for the most part, I would play the Scarampella. But at one point, I went into Mark's shop five years ago, and he said, here, try this one. Brand new fiddle he had. And I, my son, who's also a violinist, happened to be with me, and I always trust his his uh, judgment on things because he gives it to me straight and clear, <laughs> and which is a really nice thing to have. But at any rate, I played both fiddles against each other, and hands down, every single time, with a blind test, he picked Mark's fiddle over my Scarampella, which I had thought the Scarampella was, was the end for me, because it plays so beautifully, you know, huge, huge tone, great response, and gorgeous tone, you know. So I was in shock, and, but right then and there, I told Mark, I said, all right, make me one. And he said, well, I'm two years out. You know, he has two-year waiting list. And I said, that's fine, because I have to come up with money anyway. So <laughs> go ahead and make me a fiddle. Um, and the, I just was so excited about the process. As soon as I said that, I talked to a few other folks who had fiddles made for them by various people around, you know. And they just were all excited about the process. They told me about uh, meeting with their luthier and discussing wood types, discussing tone types, things they liked and things they wanted. And so over um, a couple, three years, uh, I, I talked to Mark occasionally and I would say, um, you know, I really like the sound of this particular Goronary. I love Fritz Kreisler's Goronary, for example love the power of that. I like the dark sound. And he'd say, oh, okay, okay. Then about three years ago, uh, he took me and my son happened to be there with me into um, his wood room. Mm -hmm. uh, luthiers are obsessed with wood, <laughs> as you probably know. Um, and Mark's got 30 or 40 years of plates of wood, tone wood all around his, his house. And I told him, I said, Mark, you know, I'm a Montana violinist. This is where I want to make my career. Um, and that's got a bit of story to it. I, uh, when I was a kid, when I was 16, I went to Germany on a student exchange for um, a cultural exchange. And I played there in a conservatory. And 
I remember flying back into Bozeman and looking down and thinking, this is the most gorgeous place in the world. Why would I ever go anywhere? Um, besides that, I love fishing. I love hunting. All these things make it so that I'm, I'm going to be a Montana forever. I'll never leave the state. So um, with that in mind, I told Mark, I said, I'm a Montana boy. I want as much a Montana violin as you can make me. Make from as much Montana wood as you possibly can. And in addition to that, I want a little bit of huckleberry juice, Montana huckleberry juice, as well as deer blood um, from a deer that I take in the varnish. And he kind of chuckled and uh, he said, oh, we can do that. We can do that. The neat thing about Mark is even though he's the maker, the creator, he, he also has a sense that there's something about these violins he, he doesn't even quite understand, you know. Um, and so he understood the idea that maybe there's an essence, a Montana essence that I need in my violin, you know. And so uh, I had a, a friend of mine who's a dendrochronologist who had uh, gone up into the Beartooths at, you know, extremely high altitude. And he found a tree that had fallen down 100 years ago, died 200 years ago, and started growing 600 years ago. And it was um, one of very tight rings. Uh, so he cut out a log of it and he brought it down and he said, I have no idea what a luthier needs, but if this tree works, you know, for the, for the top of your fiddle, then use it, you know. So I hauled this giant log. It was sitting in my orchestra room for about a year and a half. And I would always tell the kids, hey, that's where my fiddle's coming from. <laughs> and this is uh, at the high school. At the high school, yeah. Um, and I've, I brought the kids along this entire process, by the way. I, I, tell, I told them when I first had the inspiration to do it, and they're all excited about the deer blood and the huckleberries. And, you know. mm. um, but at any rate, so I, I brought this log to uh, Mark, and he has all sorts of uh, sound speed tests and specific gravity tests he does on the wood. And he called me back and he said, Mike, it won't work for, you know, for the top. And I said, that's, that's okay. It's got to be sound first, has to be sound first for me, you know? And so he said, I've got some amazing wood, I think from the Carpathian mountains is where the tone wood came from for the top. And he said, but why don't you come on down and we'll, you know, look at my wood room and choose the back, you know? And so I'm looking through all these pieces of wood and I see one kind of in the back corner that was just wild looking. Didn't have the typical uh, flame look. Had a little bit of that, but had a lot of crazy patterns through it. And I said, that's the one. I love the wildness of that. I said, can that make a great fiddle? And he looked at it and he says, um, he said, absolutely. I can make a great fiddle out of that. Uh, and he said, and the other interesting thing is that came from a tree that grew up in Missoula. So out of all these places in the world that he had wood from. Maplewood. Maple we're talking Maplewood, yeah. yeah. I picked out one that happened to grow up in Montana and looked pretty wild. So yeah. it, it totally fit the bill for me. And so he was excited. Um, and over the next two years, I, I would call him about uh, what kind of strings you have or do I need a bow re here? I'd, I'd find a reason to call him. I was trying not to bug him. Um, about getting my fiddle done, but I was anxious, you know, so bad and wanted this fiddle done. And by the way, all of this is a huge chance because when you, you have something made, you have no idea how it's going to play. 
um, you know, luthiers have an idea what they're, what they're going to build it for, whether it's a dark tone or a light tone. But as a player, I mean, it's, you know, how many violins have I tried? Probably a thousand. Absolutely. And, you know, um, so it's, uh, it's all a big chance. But at the same time, I knew it would be gorgeous. And so I, I told friends, I said, you know, hey, even if it doesn't sound great, even if it doesn't outplay my current fiddles, um, it'll be a beautiful wall hanger, <laughs> you know, and I still want it. Because it'll have a good story. It'll have a great story. Yeah. yeah, great story. And so uh, the deer blood, by the way, part of the story, um, my son had shot a buck over in our uh, little place uh, near Red Lodge, Montana. And uh, so we took the heart and we put a little bit in a vial. And then I took the, <laughs> the deer blood and put it on a plate and let it dry out and then ground it up. And then I gave it to Mark that way. So, And then the huckleberries um, we picked up in... Uh, Kalispell, uh, where I have some cousins that live, and they we went up in the mountains and picked some of the huckleberries and did the same thing. Um, so the one thing is the the piece of wood that came from the bear tooths. Uh, Mark said he could use for uh, the sound post and the bass bar inside. Mm-hmm. So the bass bar being you know kind of the heart of the violin, and uh, so that wood got into the violin. It I- got in the violin anyway. So I uh, finally. Mark, um, and again, I'm, I'm bugging him for photos and, uh, you know, just saying, Oh, could, could you send me how, how it looks now? And, you know, it's coming in, um, every couple of months I'll get, you know, the top in the white and then the back in the white and then, Oh, here's the rib, you know, if the ribs are laid out. So at any rate, finally he calls and says, your fiddle's ready. And I show up, um, I was so excited. I, I, I drove down there as soon as I could. Um, and, uh, when I got there, uh, there was one more nice surprise. Um, the fittings, uh, the tailpiece and the chin rest, as well as the, the pegs, Mark was able to made up, make out of mountain mahogany, which is the only hardwood that grows in Montana up, up at the high, high levels. So, mm-hmm. um, it's so a, instead of the ebony or rosewood, he's using this mountain mahogany. Mountain yeah. Mahogany. I love it. Yeah, that just made it even that more special, you know. So I I was so thrilled by that. What, did he have the varnish? It was all varnished and ready. Yeah. When you saw it. Yeah, and I I'm of course kind of tease tease. Uh, I'm trying to tease details out of him, and I'm saying, uh, Mark, how many how many layers of varnish? And he says, oh, between twenty and thirty. He doesn't really tell me, you know, um, but he did tell me something about some kind of egg egg white treatment or something you put on the fiddle and if you look at the fiddle uh, I, hope, I hope that's a montana egg hey i hope it is i mean <laughs> it better, <probably> was. <laughs> it's got to be from a chicken in montana <laughs> <laughs> so um and the color was just it, it was great because it was uh i i hadn't really had a color in my mind you know but I kept sending him a picture of a violin that I'd held hostage of his while he was making mine. Um, I was playing on that fiddle that I had tried a few years back. And I, he kept saying, hey, are you going to bring that fiddle back? And I said, no, not until you get mine done. I'm holding this one hostage. So <laughs> Anyway, I, I'd sent a picture to him because I just love the, the look of that fiddle. And, and mine is different, but I love it even more. I mean, just super cool. So the look of the fiddle is great. And so I was super happy about that. So the moment comes. Now, have you brought your own bow down? 
Yes. Yeah. yeah. You have to have that. I brought a couple of my bows, you know. And, yeah. um, so you put it under your chin? Put it under my chin. and uh, What happened? From the moment I played it, um, I can harken back to when I first heard the violin live. Uh, my teacher, Patricia Reynolds, uh, was the fifth grade teacher when I was um, in fourth grade here. And uh, she had come to my school and demonstrated the violin. I had not heard of the violin before. You know, it was, it was new to me. And she played it, and that's the moment I was enamored by it, um, that sound. And that sound has stuck with me ever since. I don't think I've ever heard anything more beautiful. She played Mary Had a Little Lamb. Super simple melody, but I was drawn to that immediately. I was going to play the tuba the day before. <laughs> until I heard that fiddle, and that was it. Um, and she she played a gorgeous Guadagnini violin. It had just the most warm, you know, tone, and just just pure love was coming out of that fiddle, and uh, it grabbed me. So that that's the same thing that I felt when I played mine for the first time. Um, <laughs> that's just great. Yeah, because as you said, it's a real gamble. You know, Total gamble. There's, there's real money on the table. There's a lot of waiting. Yep. A lot of hope. <laughs> and uh and there it is yeah and i promised myself i wasn't going to fool myself in thinking it's better than it is and so i uh had my son turn around and again he's super honest um and i said now tell me which one you like the best and i played several different passages on both my two other italian fiddles and this one and every single time he picked my new fiddle and so i was thrilled uh and I, I had, someday I'll let him play it. I still haven't done that um, yet. But I also have something else in the works for him. <laughs> so, but that's down the road <laughs> when he attains it. It's interesting you said about bows. Um, a great old fiddle player uh, told me one time that, uh, a traditional American fiddle player, he said, the better the instrument, the more the bow is, matters. He said, because for a great, um, a great instrument, a, you need the right bow for that instrument. And even now, the bow that I've got is a, it's a very is a strong bow, um, but my main bow isn't the perfect bow for this instrument. So that'll, that'll be the next search. So uh, you've had this violin, and now you had this other idea. Right. That should be brought into the world, as it were, with its own piece of music. Is that how it? Yeah, absolutely. You know, <laughs> um, Eric Funk's been a, a, a wonderful friend and mentor of mine since I've been a kid. And uh, there's something about his music that I've always understood. He's written a couple of pieces for my, my trio in the past. Um, and I've played some other music of his. Uh, and I the, the latest piece that he just uh, had recorded uh, with Vili, uh, the fiddle player, Billy, yes, um, from, from Budapest, yeah, from Hungary, um, is just, just, I, I, I'm enamored by it as well. I, I love that piece. You know, it's just and the this coolest is the violin thing. alone. Or the violin one. alone. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And I, I love the idea of taking the violin and make it embody, try to, trying to make it embody the, the voices of different things in the orchestra, you know, trying to make it sound like a French horn. Um, that's not new completely i mean paganini did that too he, he would have the violin sound like a flute and he'd have the violin sound like french horns 
and uh, drumming sections, brass sections, you know. So, um, but Eric has taken it to the next level. He's done a whole orchestration with it, which is cool. At any rate, so I've loved Eric's music forever. And uh, I happen to be conducting um, a musical uh, in our our local theater um, a few years back, uh, a couple of years before the fiddle was done. And I saw Eric in the crowd and I just said, hey, Eric. And I was excited about, um, because I'd chosen the wood and I was telling him a bit about it. And uh, and I said, I, I don't know who said it first, whether he said, hey, I'll write a piece for it. Or whether I said, I'd be honored to have you write a piece for it. But it came about, they said, I'll have the piece. And so the piece was done within about three weeks. He calls me and he says, Mike, come down to my house, you know, play this, you know, play this piece. And, uh, so I came down and it was already on his, uh, on his computer. Now this is before you've gotten the violin? Before the violin. Yeah. It was came even, into your, physically into exactly. your Exactly. Okay. Yeah. So this is just after the idea first came. Yep. That he heard about it. <laughs> yeah. And so with Eric, then I told, um, I, I kept kind of feeding that to Mark too. So he'd try and get my done a little <laughs> I'm like, Eric's already got the piece done. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and He's got the hall booked. He's got the orchestra. <laughs> it, it, I know. We, I actually, yeah, I'm glad I didn't book the hall because I, I would have been in, in trouble <laughs> at the time. But um, at any rate, uh, so Eric um, said, I, I think I've got a great piece that'll that'll fit. Um, or he was going to write a piece. So when he when he finally got it done, uh, I, I went over and played it. And I said, what's the title? And he said, it's on borrowed time. And... He said, that's just a working title, though. We can change it. And I I thought, well, maybe a, an idea will come to me, you know, or you, Eric, you know, come to you over time. Um, but uh, it's remained that title ever since, you know. And I, the more I think about it, he, he explained to me that he was writing it when he was having some health issues. And he felt very lucky to get through these health issues and so he feels like he's on borrowed time. I, th- mm-hmm. I think I'm, I'm quoting him. So <laughs> if I misquote no, him. You're, in fact, just coincidentally, you're, you're absolutely right yeah. from our experience because we interviewed him immediately after this uh, huge health crisis that he had, which was a heart attack and a, followed by a stroke <sighs> that darn near took him away. Mm-hmm. And during the interview, he talked about what maybe might be his next piece because no he kidding. just finished Violin Alone. And yeah. He, at that time, said, I think I'll call it borrowed time. No kidding. So it was in wow. his mind right then. Oh, that's uh, cool. <laughs> and, and then I think somebody, either he made it or I made it, somebody made the comment, we're all on borrowed time. Totally. totally. And that, that just changes everything when you really think of that. And, you know, that we're here, we have these biological vehicles that we're, we're going through time in, and uh, it's sort of on loan to us. That's what a fiddle is. I mean... Yes. then that's why it's perfect. <laughs> and that's why I like the title as it is, yeah. is um, I know that with this fiddle, you know, I I have it for its first, who knows, 10, 20, 30, 40 years, maybe, however long I have it before I pass. But uh, it'll be in somebody else's hands for the next journey and somebody else's hands after that. This fiddle, if taken care of, will be around for four or 500 years. You know, and I'm just at the beginning of it. So I'm just on borrowed time. <laughs> I, I like it a lot. Yeah. So have you performed it now, this piece of music, with not, the new violin yet? Not yet. Um, 
a few things have to come into uh, uh, we're going we're looking at uh, the fall. Uh, I'm going to have one of my orchestras be the accompaniment orchestra as I play this, and I want to play a few of the gems of the violin repertoire. You know, there's a couple of the caprices and um, some Bach and uh, a couple of Chrysler things. Um, that's the other thing is he had not uh, my luthier had not told me. Um, what model he was making this after. I've always been partial to the Goronari sound. I know, you know, Heifetz, one of his, probably his greatest vehicle was his Goronari. Chrysler recorded a lot on his Goronari. And when he handed me the fiddle, I asked him, I said, what model is this on? And he said, uh, it's for the most part, with he tweaks it a little bit, but he said, for the most part, it's the Chrysler Goronari. And I'm like, oh, perfect. My favorite fiddle ever. At the end of our interview, which took place in the study in Michael's house, I asked Michael to play some music on his special violin. Here is a short portion of that impromptu performance. Some people that I've met and interviewed, violin makers, mm-hmm. um, have uh, will name their violins. Mm-hmm. And uh, did Mark ever consider naming the violin? Does he ever do that <laughs> with his violin? It's funny you say that. I um, I was going to name this violin, but I'm waiting till the name comes to me. Uh, because I don't want to, you know, I thought about the deer slayer, but that's silly. You know, it's not a deer slayer. Mm-hmm. Um, mainly because I don't want anybody, you know, my, again, my students are involved in this whole process. And the first time they heard it, they were just thrilled, you know. But uh, I figure the name will come to me, you know. And maybe Mark has an idea. I'll ask him to. All it, of my students. Do you think it'll I have, have a feminine or masculine sort of name? What's, what's its sense to you? Or is that is that a too simplistic anymore? 
oh boy, in this day and age, with what we with what with what we do, yeah, <laughs> with uh, the you know with how society is and how uh, personalities are these days, it's it's not so important. Um, I Mark did ask me. He said he said, "Do you think it's more of a, a male or a female?" And I have a real hard time categorizing it as such because, for example, some of my favorite singers. Robert Plant or um, uh, Rolling Stones guy. What is his name? Oh, Mick Jagger. Yeah, you know, yeah. I mean, when they're on stage, I I can't really see them as male or female. There's something beyond that. They're there's so much in the soul that it's you know in my mind beyond that. But, I I interviewed a violin maker from Iceland, uh, Hans Johansson, mm-hmm. great maker. And at one point, I asked him about this process of making a violin on commission, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, by request versus making the violin and then hopefully the right person will come. And I do love this idea of destiny. You know, you make the violin, yeah. it's going to feel the dreams, right. make it and they'll come. The right person comes along at the right time. In your in your story, there's a lot of that, at least to my ear. Mm-hmm. Other people would dismiss it as just happenstance. But, sure. you know, how did that wild piece of wood show up in that wood pile? And mm-hmm. why did you pick that one? All those wonderful elements that that are what we, why we love stories. Yeah. The stories yeah. usually have a little of this in it, this sense mm-hmm. of the uh, the mysterious and the unexpected coincidence. But uh, so I was asking him about that. And he said occasionally he would do a violin uh, as a commission, mm-hmm. and he said, um, but I have to decide whether the player is a puller or a pusher. <laughs> now, I, you know, I didn't know exactly what he meant by that. Mm-hmm. And uh, then he said, mostly the musicians from Europe. And he got very specific. I mean, I think he said Belgium, parts of Holland. Then he basically said, well, basically most of Europe, mm-hmm. they're pullers. Mm-hmm. In America, they're mostly all pushers. Pushers, yeah, yeah. You know what this is then? Yeah, yeah. And what he's basically saying is they've got the idea of the music they want to express. And they will harness that instrument to make that happen. Yeah. They will get that music out of that instrument. Whereas the other person is, what is this violin trying to say? What is its voice? Yeah. And, uh, you know, so I don't know if that is a gender connection, but it it has an interesting, again, it does have that yin-yang quality to it. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, well, you know, um, one of the things that's always frustrated me about my own personal voice is I have very low range, you know, very small range, right? All the great singers <laughs> seem to have a huge range. Um, and so my fiddle's got a huge range. <laughs> so I'm going to say that, uh, again, going back to the some of the great, uh, you know, and I grew up on 70s rock music. You know, I heard, heard a lot of that when I was a kid. My dad loved it. And and I still love it today. My kids, my students love it. My own son loves it. Um, but again, I go to that quality that's, it's neither male nor female. It's just spirit, you know. And mm-hmm. I i go back to uh, uh, my religious roots when I think that too. The more spirit it is, the less male or gender it has. I mean, as Jesus said, uh, in heaven, they're not male or female. <laughs> You know, so it comes straight from the Bible. I think the more spiritual you are, the less you care about the nuts and bolts of uh, gender. <laughs> and now I'll show the, the depth of my ignorance about the natural world. Mm-hmm. Do trees have genders? I have no idea. Are some trees, 
you know, are they are they both genders? I think they're yeah, some of them are both, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, because they seed. give off pollen and they need pollen too. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so we're getting kind of who knows. But uh, so the the instruments are made out of wood. I love the yes. I love the uh, the old wood. I love the idea of the old wood too. The tree uh, having grown so long ago. Oh yeah, before. Uh, yeah, the the one that was where the base bar and the sound post are made out of um, mm-hmm. started growing before, you know, Columbus set sail, I think. Am I right? Somewhere around 600 years ago. Anyway, somewhere around there, you know. Yeah, today we visited uh, what's called the Traveler's Rest, mm-hmm. the place that they, they discovered after having been confused about it for some time of where uh, the Lewis and Clark expedition, yeah. uh, where they camped. Um near uh, Missoula, South Missoula, mm-hmm. Lola. Mm-hmm. And they thought it was this one place, and then they realized it was another place, and they were able to prove it. And how they proved it is fascinating. We got the whole story today, how they really could prove that was the camp. Yeah. And uh, so we were over there, and uh, there was a fiddler who went on that journey with Lewis and Clark. Right, right. French-Canadian man. Yep. And uh, so uh, I had my fiddle with me, and uh, so we decided to walk back into where the camp was, and it's mm-hmm. now a state park. And there was a guide there who met us, as it turns out. And we walked in. I had my fiddle. And it, and it is a fiddle made in Paris. So oh, it is. Yes, Perfect. It was like a French, you know, fiddle. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, but he pointed out three trees that they've carbon dated or, you know, done core samples, whatever, that mm-hmm. were there at the time. Oh, yeah. That uh, this camp was there. Mm-hmm. And I love that idea. So we positioned where I was playing. So Paula was with a little iPhone, taking a picture of me playing it, but behind me was a tree that was there. That's something else. I, yeah. I love that stuff. It, it is amazing. I mean, yeah, yeah it, it just gives you a sense. You know, that's one of the reasons I love classical music. Um, uh, that reaches way back, you know, into like uh, into the Renaissance is uh, the spirit and joy that they put into their music or sadness or, you know, whatever when you put it into these instruments that pretty much have been developed by around 1500, I guess, 1550 or so, then all of a sudden that same spirit comes alive again. I mean, that, that's true magic. Can't put my finger on it. Nobody can, and you can't bottle it, but it's, we all know it. We feel it, you know? You almost used alchemy, the idea of alchemy. It would be the philosopher's stone. Mm-hmm. It, uh, I mean, one way, to, it's the, the thing that, is able to make this transformation occur from, yes. from the base metal to the gold. Yeah, uh, but that's you have beautiful. to have that. And uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I love that analogy. That's great. Yeah, it's um, well. Tell me just a little bit of your personal story, and we'll uh, we'll. Uh, I really like to hear that. So, I, and you've alluded to it already, of course. Mm-hmm. But was there any music further back in your family, as far as players? Mm-hmm. Uh, going back generation two, or had your family even come into Montana? What, what's the story? Where'd yeah. they come from? Um, various places in Europe uh, is probably the best way to say it. Um, my my grandfather um, is Slovenian, and uh, I have well, my my paternal grandfather is Slovenian. My grandmother is Irish. My uh, my maternal grandmother is. Um, escaped Germany when they were persecuting the gypsies and, and the Jews. And then my grandfather is a mix of so many th- other things. I don't even know, you know what it is. So, but for the most part, uh, from Europe, 
my I know there were fiddle players in my uh, maternal grandmother's side, but they got locked on the other side of the wall when it went up, and she had just escaped. The were wall. they Jewish? Is it a um, Jewish family or? Well, the gypsy probably. Gypsy, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. But they were they were uh, uh, trapped, you know, in the wall. In fact, my grandmother had two children who were on the other side the day the wires went up, and she was not able to go get them. So. Uh, you know, tragedy back then. And so, yeah, there were, there were fiddle players on that side. Um, it's likely that, uh, on my Slovenian side, there were fiddle players too, but nobody in my aunts and uncles, um, immediate aunts and uncles, uh, played. Uh, so it was very, my uncle, I, I do have a great, um, well, my, my uncle who, uh, is a wonderful guitar player. So, uh, it's almost like it just kind of resurfaced, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, in me and my son. Now, uh, my niece, my two brothers, they all play. So, um, And you said it really was this uh, experience, particularly with the violin, in school of just hearing mm-hmm. this violin. It was. It awakened something. It did. Um, who knows what memory that really is. And it's so strange because, uh, again... Before this, uh, Patty, Patty Reynolds came in and introduced the violin to my psyche. It didn't exist, you know, until I was eight years old. And and I remember the day that I heard it. I went home uh, from school and I went up to my mom and I said, Mom, I'm playing the violin. And she was kind of shocked, but thrilled at the same time. So, um, and that was it. <laughs> So, and so, and then you went on in life, not only to play the instrument, but which was inspired by this woman, but also become a teacher mm-hmm. to take the same role that she had with you. Yes, hundred percent. Yeah. So you took the whole package. Yeah. From her. <laughs> yeah, Patty Reynolds is, uh, uh, um, and and her husband Creech, who I got to study with later on in my uh, college career. Um, he was also a fiddle player, but they. They were truly pioneers in this area. They they brought music. They both studied uh, uh, at Eastman and wanted to come out west. And their son is a wonderful cellist, uh, plays with the Muir Quartet. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's something special about, um, well, I'm going to go back. Uh, at any rate, so so uh, Patty and Creech are, have given me this life. I mean, and I, I'm thrilled. I, I love making music and I make a lot of it uh, with kids and by myself. And, you know, I couldn't be more th- grateful. So we're living through certainly a troubled age in, in many ways. However, I interviewed uh, Joshua Bell. He's very quick to point out that a lot mm-hmm. of the great music we listen to today in the classical repertoire was written at times where life was really rough. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> People were dying early. They were, had disease. I mean, so I don't want to overemphasize what we're dealing with today, but we seem to be dealing with a different kind of almost um, deadening quality coming into the way that um, I think that people, uh, young people particularly, I just everywhere I turn, people are looking at pieces of glass everywhere I look. And you know, they're just always holding a piece of glass in front of their face and mm-hmm. pushing buttons. And, yep. and uh, so how do you see your role in, in this changing environment? I mean, we do know that the brains of children are being 
significantly rewired at a very mm-hmm. early age. I mean, we're giving these devices now to children under the age of two, yeah. uh, you know, whether it's to entertain them or keep them quiet, yeah. whatever it might be. But um, so you're doing this thing that is very analog. Mm-hmm. Right. And I love the analog <laughs> yeah. quality of having the deer's blood and the, you know, I mean, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's doubling down on the sense, uh, yeah. the world of the senses. Right. Right. Uh, not this digital digital replication sure, of reality. Sure. Yeah. So, what's your any, any then, anywhere you yeah, want to go this, with that? This, yeah, it, you know, and I I appreciate so much the recordings that have been done. They're, they're technology. It's uh, it'll be probably two hundred years before we can look back and see what it really did to us. You know, because I see some great gifts. I see my students uh, be able to look up Django Reinhardt early. You know, Django playing or early Sarasati recordings um, and hear the genius, you know, of that guy. I mean, playing just, you know, whips and chains around anybody, you know, it's just insane how, how good these guys were. So there, there's that, that's super cool. Uh, I also sometimes sense that my students are now more social than they were 20 years ago when there wasn't the social media, because they're always talking to each other on the, um, but at the same time, uh, I also see some some real uh, disconnect in how they communicate to each other because there's not the facial expression. There's not all that other stuff that comes into actually person-to-person um, speaking. If you just text it all the time and you send it off within you know 10 seconds of texting. You put a couple of smiley faces or sad faces. Yeah, the emojis. You know. Emojis, that's what they are, right? And right. I, Yeah, the emojis are like maybe a, a, a sign that we're trying to grasp onto something and, and say more with our text than just you know a few letters can do. So I think we're trying. But whether it's, it's a huge uh, experiment that I, I can't really foresee. I mean, maybe people you know, more intelligent than me can say this is really what's happening who have more insight to it. But I do know this. When you're playing an orchestra with those around you, you are working on a group conscience um, where you have to be listening constantly to everything that's going on around you and participating in it. And that process of making music together, and and that's what it is. You're, you're, the kids are just sitting there trying to create beauty together whether it's beauty of tragedy or beauty of excitement, beauty of, um, of events that have happened or longing, longing. I mean, they're doing it together. And when they create a great product together and they know it, they feel it together. There's, there's a lot of smiles that happen because they, uh, somehow their souls got in sync for that little bit of time. And they can't be on the phone while they're playing, <laughs> especially with fiddles. Well, I'll wait by the phone for the day you pick the right name for this violin that you have. Yes. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm waiting for it. Yeah. <laughs> thank you very much. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Thanks, Joe. To finish this podcast, here is a brief passage from a condensa that Eric Funk composed for Michael's violin. Thank you.
Thank you for listening to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. Rosin the Bow is produced by Joe and Paula McHugh in the studios of the Raven Radio Theater. Our theme music was arranged and performed by the string quartet, The Fretless. For more information about the Rosin the Bow project and to listen to additional podcasts, please visit our website, rosinthebow.org. And I will conclude with a pair of quotes the first from Abraham Lincoln in 1864. My favorite state has not been invented yet. It will be called Montana, and it will be perfect. And from John Steinbeck, I'm in love with Montana. For other states, I have admiration, respect, recognition, even some affection. But with Montana, it is love. Thank you.